As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. And welcome to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Taylor Rockwell, and with me today to talk about a few different topics, but mostly Manchester United and trying to make sense of them yet again, it's Carl Anka. Hello, Carl, and welcome back. Ahoy hoy. Hello. How are you? <laughs> I'm doing very well. I appreciate the ahoy hoy. It is a solid way to start the show. Mr. Burns approves. As I said, I've got a lot of questions about Man United, a few about uh, the January window. I thought you made some pretty interesting uh, arguments in an athletic piece you just wrote. But I want to start in the obvious place, scrolling your Twitter today. What is Fufu, and do I need to try it? Uh, Fufu, yes. It's a starchy Ghanaian dish that is consumed with uh, kind of a ground nut soup or, or a soup my mom makes with, with, with plum tomatoes. Um, and yeah, I'd say it's it's one of the most traditional Ghanaian dishes you can have there. Uh, I think my mom sometimes makes it with like a, a mashed potato and, and maize-like powder when I was growing up. Um, although you can have pounded jam. So eventually, you know, traditionally, you can you know do things with like pounded jam. But yes, I would, I would recommend you have fufu. Uh, traditionally, eat with your hands. Um, you're going to fall asleep pretty quickly after eating it. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, so that was my question. So it's like, it looks like a large ball of dough in a bowl of soup how do you eat it with yeah. your hands is it just dipping yeah yeah so you just sort of like take apart the ball of dough uh-huh. uh, and then enjoy enjoy the soup uh, and then also there tends to be quite um nice stewed meats as well it tends to fall off the bone and you just enjoy that um, and it's a very nice slow meal to to finish the day with it's not one you can you know half eat and then half be scrolling on your phone as well so uh <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Th- this yeah. was in this is in context of it was uh, was it Inaki Williams's mother or grandmother who was talking about he stays fit because he eats well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which I, I really enjoyed. He likes Ghanaian food. His favorite is fufu and groundnut soup. He there also likes waiaki and shito too. Uh, waiaki and shito, which can be um, a little bit more Nigerian dishes as well. But uh, I'm, I'm here for it. I'm here for more football players <laughs> of of the West African diaspora talking about the food. They eat, or, pa- or parents or thereabouts talking about the, the food they eat. Um, it's quite interesting now that obviously there are quite a few 
players who are either Ghanaian or could have been eligible to play for Ghana um, across like entering uh, a top league. So you've got players like Memphis, who Ghanaian father, uh, Callum Hudson-Odoi, dad, Hudson, uh, Bismarck, were played in the Ghanaian leagues, uh, and you know Callum could have would have qualified for Ghana and whatnot. So they're all all around the diaspora. Um, but I only sort of understand why there are so many Ghanaians across the diaspora now, as I'm sort of become an adult. I'm like, oh wait, why are there so many Ghanaians everywhere? Why did we have a mass little uh, sort of through conversations with my mother? I'm learning a lot more about Ghanaian history, if only because I am now stood next to more Ghanaians born or people with Ghanaian heritage born after like 1992, which has been quite fun for me. If possible, is it? Are you able to give a like relatively succinct answer for that? Because I, I wonder that too. There's a a fairly decent Ghanaian population in Richmond, and I, I played with on a team with like six Ghanaian guys, and I was always kind of curious why there seemed to be a lot of Ghanaians around the world. Kevin Prince, or Kevin Prince Boateng and Jerome yep. Boateng, the other ones. Uh, Kevin Prince yep. did play for Ghana. Jerome less so. Yes. Uh, so I think. Well, uh, I'm being very very quickly. So mm-hmm. Ghana gains independence in the 1960s. Um, Nkrumah uh, is the first president, um, is very, very close to Malcolm X, meets Martin Luther King, very, very close. And then around by the 80s, uh, Jerry Rawlings um, takes over power through what, depending on who you ask, is a military coup. Um, Mr. Rawlings is of a, again, depending on who you ask, is of a vague left disposition in his politics. Um, and, and then depending on who you ask, uh, uh, you killed a lot of people, <laughs> uh, which caused quite a few Ghanaians to go, I'm, I'm getting out of here. Um, uh, Mr. Rawlings passed away late last year, uh, which caused another conversation of sort of the, the person that may have been indirectly responsible for me having a British accent, uh, passed away. And that person was never really mentioned in my household. <laughs> so which he passed away. I went, oh, I know this person is vaguely important. What happened? And my mum sort of went, oh, yeah, he was really, really important to, like, the creation of modern Ghana. Sends message. And the next message was, he killed so many people, crying emoji. I was like, mum, that's not really a, not, I'm like, I'm like, it's the wrong kind of crying emoji in this situation. <laughs> I feel, yeah, with that in mind, I feel bad laughing at that. But that is such a, like, I guess when it just becomes, like, normalized or it's such a thing that you have dealt with or processed yourself, it becomes a, like, yeah, like, sad face emoji. Like, no, that's not, that that doesn't justify a sad face emoji. But I understand where you're coming from, but it's it's a little bit strange. So I appreciate that, that, uh, that history, though. The question then is, like, is there a person that they do talk about as being important to Ghana? Like, is there one figure that... Your, your folks would look to as opposed to uh, a dictator who killed a lot of people and necessitates crying emojis? I, again, depending on who you ask to. <laughs> so, uh, Mr. Rawlings, uh, he's got a very good picture on, 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 the, on the BBC. Mm-hmm. Um, Jerry John Rawlings. And I think by his own admission, he admitted he, he you know, the killings were, uh, I think he, he, he had a bit of introspection and said, in hindsight, I probably killed a little bit too many. But I kind of needed to. Um, so he, so General Rawlings led a military junta until 1992, um, served two terms as the democratically elected president. Um, so he helped basically, again, depending on who you ask. And if you're Ghanaian and you listen to this podcast saying, I'm getting this all wrong, I am half listening to what some of my uncles and aunties say, um, and I don't live in Ghana anymore. So my opinion on this has been colored by that. Um, but yes, Jer- uh, Jerry John Rawlings did say sort of like, yeah, I killed, I killed maybe a lot, but I should I kind of had to. Um, interesting character. Someone I need yeah. to 
read a lot more about. It's an interesting form of a mea culpa. Let's talk about lighter things instead. Let's yes. talk about the uh, the January window, shall we? Instead of I, I have, I'm happily happy to talk about Ghanaian food and culture, maybe less so. Uh, if too many people were killed or not. I'll leave that for smarter people than myself. Instead, let's talk the January window, uh, in which you made a pretty compelling argument for why there might not be as much money spent this time around. Can you explain that uh, that reasoning to listeners? Yeah, so essentially, we are still in, in this COVID transfer window, and uh, Real Madrid, normally one of the big movers in both the summer and January transfer windows, have basically you know, they spent no money in the summer window, and from what I understand, they might buy one player next summer but other than that they don't really look likely to to make any noise barcelona are in financial and political strife um and they've got the Lionel Messi question mark over over their heads as well um and then it's the really interesting thing where if you remove two of the richest clubs from world football and they both said we're not going to spend money it causes interesting ripples and reverberations around european football because not only does that mean big players aren't moving left or right but also it means you can't really use big teams as leverage for new contracts so what you're seeing now is basically the death of Sergio Ramos the Manchester United so I'd say since about 2009 to my memory Sergio Ramos has been linked to Manchester United in some shape or form once yep. once every other transfer window and what tends to happen is Ramos is linked to Manchester United uh, nothing you know and then on the moment it gets kind of serious Ramos signs a brand new contract for Real Madrid and it tends to be quite a good one so uh, I had a look at the Google Trends and and the biggest spike on Sergio Ramos Manchester United happens in July 2015, of which a month later Ramos signed his biggest contract extension yet at Real Madrid. And it's that sort of thing of players who are, might be wanting to leave clubs, but also might just be wanting a better contract. So, now no longer being able to use that. Well, if you don't give me the contract I want, I'll go to Real Madrid or I'll go to Manchester United. And it's causing this really interesting thing in the transfer market. I think this is going to be a transfer market, much like the summer one, where it will mostly be a barter-like system of swaps, loan deals, uh, one-in, one-outs. I think, uh, so as we record this podcast, we're recording this on the 19th. So Jack Wilshire was a free agent and he's just been signed to Bournemouth. And I think you're going to see a couple of those transfers going on this window. So Danny Drinkwater has just uh, done a loan deal to a Turkish side. And I think you're going to see quite a few players who were either free agents or close to being free agents getting moved on by clubs. So I imagine someone like Daniel Sturridge will be finding a club this January transfer window. I imagine Danny Rose will be leaving Tottenham Hotspur uh, to go somewhere. Uh, and I think those are the deals that are going to happen more rather than, say, a £45 million deal to bring uh, Milic from Napoli to somewhere. Are you telling me that Katim Pasha is not Danny Drinkwater's boyhood club? I had no idea. <laughs> uh, I, I, did you see Danny Drinkwater's tackle on Harvey White? No. In the, I've seen uh, a lot of Danny Drinkwater things. I have not seen that. that Danny Drinkwater has been playing on a 23 football for Chelsea this first half of the season, and he had to play against um, Tottenham Hotspurs on the 23s, which put him in contact with, with Mr. White, who is 16 years of age and, and scored in, in the uh, in the FA Cup game against Marine. And there's a little moment where, where Harvey, you sort of, you know, gives him a bit of afters on the tackle, to which Danny Drinkwater, moments later on, properly goes at him, two-footed with the tackle. And you're going, ah, you've won a Premier League medal and you're beating up a teenager. That's weird, isn't it? It's a sh sh shades of well done. He's thirteen. Yeah, I feel like yes, that. Uh, very that, much. Feels, that feels very appropriate. Much. Um, very much. 
So, and I think we also had, uh, just as we started recording, maybe it's just a rumor, but I think it was also uh, David Alaba on a free to Real Madrid. But that kind of speaks to what you're talking about, that it seems like players who are out of contract are maybe going to be looking for those opportunities, but maybe those other bigger clubs aren't going to be wanting to spend as much money. For those players that traditionally do use that that leverage, that system of uh, Sergio Ramos, Wesley Schneider, Nico Gaitan, I think I've signed for Manchester United uh, 400 yes. times, roughly. <laughs> like, for those types of players, how different are things now? How do they go about getting new contracts? Or is it going to be a sort of difficult negotiation process compared to what they're used to? I think, I think it's going to be much more difficult. I think we're also going to see quite a few more players just run down their contracts. So... um while Aaron Ramsey's move to Juventus is uh, has only been a qualified success, I think we might see more moves like that. So Aaron Ramsey sort of let his contract run down at Arsenal and then moved to Juventus for what was reported to be £400,000 a week um, in Juventus. And sort of Juventus being very much, we can afford to pay you more per week because we're not spending that money on transfer fee. Um, it's a bit difficult to understand, well, to my mind, now forgive me, it's a little harder to know if that's his exact wage or if that's something with add-ons because as far as I understand, player wages in Italy are do not follow the, the tax convention that player wages do in other European countries. So it's, it's one of those hard ones where I do need to ask a Serie A experts. Is Aaron Ramsey actually getting paid £400,000 a week? Or is he, or is he, are Juventus putting that money in and then a tax amount is being removed. So we'll see. But I think I think you are going to see more deals like that. I, if Alaba does decide to depart Bayern Munich or if he's simply waiting for Bayern Munich to give him a great contract, remains to be seen. But if he does go to Real Madrid, I would imagine he would be a very well-paid player. Um, I'm still unsure about that deal because I don't think Alaba is what Real Madrid need unless they intend to play him in defensive midfield again, which could work. So that would, I'm guessing, then imply that you think they need a defensive midfielder? Um, no, I, well, I think I think uh, one thing that sometimes gets skimmed over by Zinedine Zidane and his tactical approach and how he like views football was, was made a really good point by Grace Robertson uh, at Grace on Football on Twitter. Uh, she basically went, you know, even though Zidane won loads of trophies for Real Madrid and won a World Cup for France, you have to remember he was educated in Italy at Juventus and very much believes very Juventus things about discipline and order so it's no surprise that sort of Zidane's one of Zidane's most famous quotes about Real Madrid was all about McAuley leaving and then he finds Casemiro and he's basically like I'm going to play Casemiro until his legs fall off <laughs> <laughs> so I, I don't think Real Madrid are in the market for a defensive midfielder who can displace Casemiro because Zidane absolutely adores Casemiro but um, Alaba certainly makes more sense to me as someone who can play DM first and then centre back rather than he's the new centre back um, that's really yeah. that's really interesting. Uh, it then makes me wonder, and I'm wondering if you have ideas. Like with that influence in mind, are there other players you think that if uh, Zidane were given a blank check and said like you can go sign one or two players, like who are the types of players or who would be the players that you think he would especially prize? Oh, I mean, I mean, when you when you view through that Italian, he's more Juventus than Real Madrid. Then you understand why Paul Pogba. Is constantly being linked to Real Madrid, not only from the commercial point of view, but also in the ah, you're the you're the stardust that can put on top of all this solidity to raise our team's ceiling rather than raise the floor level, and I think that explains a lot. I did uh, in a previous life, I, I worked with quite a few Brazilian football players, 
uh, and uh, Spanish-speaking football players who, who had been in and around Real Madrid. And one thing that, that stuck with me for a long time was a quote from Danilo, where Danilo said, um, Zinin Zidane doesn't shout to the Spanish-speaking or Portuguese-speaking players at Real Madrid. He simply just glares at them and takes a step forward because he doesn't, he, doesn't, he doesn't need to. Uh, which I thought was a very interesting form of man management, where he 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 can shout and bark and scream at the English speaking players and the French speaking players, but if it's if it's the the Spanish speaking ones or the Portuguese one, he just sort of I'm going to kill you, gives them the death glare, and they fall in line. Um, which is the thing of why I think Zidane is probably is you know a very very good Real Madrid manager, but if you put him anywhere else, he'd be less effective. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone. Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Is there a, a player or manager or maybe both uh, who have had that effect on you? Because I do find there are certain players that I don't really expect to be a like, oh, I, I got to like really, really focus up and be on my A game here because they are very serious and uh, maybe not so accommodating as they are intimidating. Are there any of those for you? Uh, I think there was a really good recent example last season where Everton released, you know, said goodbye to Marco Silva and brought in Duncan Ferguson and then immediately... Everton's running levels just like yeah. jumped up by five or six kilometers because you know from what you know about Duncan Ferguson if you don't run he will kill you <laughs> he will kill you um and while he was he was very nice uh, he was very nice and he was a very very good manager and sort of I really enjoyed his sort of giving giving an armband and the sweatband to fans after games but from by all accounts uh I mean he was an absolutely frightening football player uh, and I can imagine being sort of a cold Evertonian young player not making the run in training sessions and having him shout and going, right, well, I'm, I'm never not going to do that again because I don't want to ever be shouted at by Mr. Ferguson. Yeah, I did again. think it was a little bit over the line that he just had the stuffed head of Morgan Schneiderlin displayed, but I guess that really does help <laughs> get the point across, doesn't it? Truly. <laughs> uh, I should say, like, it's a silly question probably to ask you about being intimidated talking to players or coaches since you are currently in the process of writing a book with a certain footballer. Can you talk a little bit about that and how that came to be? Yeah, so um, I am writing a book with Marcus Perfect. Rashford. It's called You Are a Champion. It is currently penciled in for a May release this year. Um, and it's myself, Marcus Rashford, and a sports psychologist, uh, Katie Warren. And we're trying to create a children's book. It's going to be for 11 to 16-year-olds. And it's going to try and help bring a lot of Marcus Rashford's life stories uh, and his learnings and try and develop a, a framework for resilient thinking, I think is probably the best way to describe it. Resilient thinking and, and thinking about um, a new form of empathy in terms of leadership. Because I think, you know, if you look at Marcus Rashid's off-the-field activities, you can see he's a man of clear, deep empathy. Um, and I think 
what he wants to do next is really, really interesting. So this is going to be the first book in a series Marcus Rashford is going to be doing with Macmillan Book Publishing. Um, and this will be a nonfiction book. And I think the books after that will also explore other areas that Marcus Rashford is interested so in. So a nonfiction children's book, is that sort of like using his life as inspiration for stories? Is it just using experiences to sort of reflect what he's gone through? What do you envision it being? It's both. So um, Marcus and I have had, a number, have had some conversations uh, about some of his life stories and sort of who his heroes were, times when things were good, times when things were bad. Um, and it, what's really interesting about that is he, he's already thinking like an author and thinking about how certain life lessons, either football or non-football, could be useful to, to people. Or, or at least the way he tells the story, I'm, I, I'm already captivated going, wow, that's amazing. <laughs> um, so, um, yes, I, I'm, I'm very excited for it. Although I am now in a mode where if, if you see me mucking around on Twitter, a ridiculous hour not doing something you are now allowed to yell at me carl shut up and finish your book so uh, all right but only if you know me only if you know me we're, we're on we're on we're on, we're on okay. good terms i'm, I'm allowed uh, to say shut up yeah. yeah you're allowed yeah if i'm like doing a long tweet thread about transformers you can say carl shut up and write your book <laughs> i don't know it could be it's always very important to explore the uh the cinematic profile of Michael Bay. So I, I won't, I won't begrudge you that one, but other things maybe I will. Uh, and, and I know you've, you've like interacted with him before in your work as a reporter, but what were you expecting heading in? Cause I have this idea of him as this sort of like elite athlete who also can carry himself in the diplomatic world as well. I think I would have expected this, like, I don't know, this like massive figure coming in. I wouldn't be ready for him to necessarily talk about like, all right, so this is what I was thinking for the children's book. Like, how did you sort of bridge <laughs> that gap in your mind? Or was it pretty easy? Um, that was pretty easy. So I, I got, I got after the, the, you know, the contract was signed and you all said hello and, and shook hands um, over Zoom, of course, COVID. Uh, I was sent a number of books, um, some that Marcus actually particularly enjoyed. Um, and, and the one that stuck out is this book called Relentless from Tim Grover. So um, to anyone listening to this podcast that's watched The Last Dance, Tim Grover is the gentleman who is Michael Jordan's personal trainer. And if you watch the episode near the end where they tell the flu, sh the flu game story, it's Tim Grover who says it's not a flu game. It's the food poisoning story. Um, so this is, you know, Michael Jordan's personal trainer. This is Kobe Bryant's personal trainer. This is the personal trainer to Dwayne Wade. And he's written uh, a self-help book called Relentless. And it's all about going from good to great to being unstoppable. Um, and it's very much about having a singular vision and making sure you get better every single day at something. And I sort of forgot that. So Marcus Rashford is nice, mm -hmm. right? He, he smiled. He, he, he's very much the – I think what's really interesting about Manchester United is their two strikers – or two strikers for a little bit have been Marcus Rashford and, and Anthony Martial. And they have that very nice cat and dog energy yep. to them where sort of Marcus Rashford is often portrayed as being like the nice, wholesome figure and Marshall and uh, Anthony Martial is portrayed as sort of like the colder, like assassin who yeah. wears clothes. Yeah. Right. Um, and in reading relentless, what I read was, what, you know, reading went, Oh wait, no, Marcus Rashford is quietly a killer too. <laughs> Um, to which I should I was really going of course he's a killer he does knuckleballs all the time why wouldn't yep. he be one um, <laughs> like he like he scored penalties against Colombia in World Cups he scored a penalty to, against Paris Saint-Germain why would I think Marcus Rashford is too nice to do the wet work when it comes to playing football 
Um, but that, that, that's that's always been quite interesting. Um, and there are plenty more stories I will tell you uh, as we get closer to publish date and uh, we get more chapters in the uh, Well, I look forward to hearing more about Marcus Rashford, the the book author and everything that went into it. But I also want to talk about Marcus Rashford, the player. Uh, you wrote an extensive article about that as well. Uh, what would you say in your mind are his biggest strengths? And then what are the areas of his game that you think need to develop the most? Because basically, I, I will give you a moment, as I say to listeners, like, I am sort of at a loss when it comes to this Manchester United team. I, I want to believe that they're going to do big things and be really successful. I still have a hard time believing that that's possible. I still have a lot of questions. It seems like most people writing about Manchester United have a lot of those same questions. So I'm basically going to look to Carl to help me make sense of this team. And we're going to start with Marcus Rashford because I have my moments where I think he's this elite, unplayable forward. And, I, and then I have moments where I'm frustrated because he put, like, put three shots in a row directly at the goalkeeper. Right. Okay. So, I, I mean... I've just tweeted today about how this Manchester United team are impossible to sum up in 800 words. Like you can sum them up very quickly in a bunch of jokes. You can sum them up with like 1,200 words with some diagrams. Uh, if you properly want to describe anything with Manchester United, it needs to be close to 3,000 words with some charts and some screenshots. But 800, a nice succinct thing you can read on the toilet or when you're bored in the cube, very, very hard. They're a team of uh, contrasting styles. A strange styles team of footnotes, I believe, footnotes. is your line. Yeah. yeah. Yes. A strange team of footnotes where every every one thing that works well is working well both in spite of something and because two other people are doing something strange in a different corner of the pitch. So in terms of Marcus Rashid, what I would say is he is a he's a very direct ball carrying forward. And I'm using the word forward rather than a striker because he hasn't quite coalesced in a way that I can confidently say, oh, he's going to be a number nine or oh, he's going to be sort of the left-hand side player in a 4-3-3 and a 4-2-3-1. Um, so he's a very direct player, what I would say. He's, he's very good at dribbling, and his, dribb- his dribbling style tends to be um, one where you dribble past players rather than dribble around them. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? So uh, if you remember watching Eden Hazard, I think Brian Phillips once wrote something sort of Eden Hazard is like a character uh, scrolling through various tabs on a computer before he goes, that one. Because he's got, he's going through like four or five different scenarios, and he's head going maybe this, maybe this, maybe this, maybe this, maybe this, maybe this, maybe this. That's the best situation. Let's do that now. Um, Saudi and Mane sort of dribbles like that. He dribbles like that a lot more in his Liverpool stage, although in his Southampton stage, um, he was he was very much sort of I'm just going to go around four or five people, and if I get caught, who cares? Whereas Marcus Rashford tends to be an A to B style dribbler, where if you look at his preferred dribbling moves, sort of he does a lot of nutmegs. I think he's the leading person in the Premier League in nutmegs and one of the top five people in nutmegs other than uh, Neymar. Uh, and he does a lot of elastico flip-flaps. So his dribbling tricks tend to be, I'm going to create a yard of space between us and I'm going to blow past you. And he's very much, I need to, I dribble because I'm trying to get from A to B quickly, not I'm dribbling because I'm trying to deceive you. So I'd say he's, he's very direct. He's very good at ball carrying. So he, he has quite good tight control. Um, he's been practicing keepy uppies and foot and uh, tricks since the age of about four or five uh, when he went to United and moved to Diggs at the age of 11. He, I think United at the time were using the Dutch Corver system, uh, which was uh, Rene Mulfenstein. Mm-hmm. Um, so he was the former manager. He was the assistant manager at Alex Ferguson. He was the skills coach um, for the majority of part before he became the assistant manager. He did a little bit of Fulham and now I believe he is either in he was the famed manager of Anji Makachkala for a little while, as I recall. Yes, and now he's the assistant manager at Austra- uh, of the Australian national team. He's, he's 
a very, very nice man. Um, so if you ever read any article about a Manchester United player, a present-day Manchester United player who came through the academy, he is there or thereabouts mm. in the interview. Um, he's not one, uh, you know, he's someone you can, as a journalist, he's very, very nice because if I, you know, if you text him and say, Hey, could you give me five minutes to explain this? He will explain it for you, which is always pleasant. Yeah. Um, uh, and, and from what I understand, he helped bring in or helped teach the Dutch curva system to a number of players in the academy at the time. So Rashford, Lingard, uh, players of that age, uh, Axel Twenzebi as well. So the Dutch curva system is very much, um, you basically have like a very large phone book of diagrams and sheets where you are shown certain moves and, and basically like, here's step one to doing a quarter turn. Here's step two. Here's step three. Have you done that? Turn the page. It's the most um, boring soccer actually, camp you can go to. I can tell you that from experience of going to one where we, <laughs> all we did was like the eight curver moves for a week straight. Yeah, it's uh, it's rigid. Yeah, yeah. Although it's one of those things where I, I think I was just old enough. I'm, I'm maybe like a slightly too old. So that by the time it became like a, a sort of a standard in terms of coaching, uh, I, I just was too old for it. So I was like, oh, okay. I just, I'll just never be a football player. <laughs> also, I have no left foot. And I hate the cold, so I was never going to be a player. That's why I'm my journey. You never would have survived um, in Stoke, is what you're telling me. Got it. Never, never. Oh my god. Oh my god. I, I need like I need like three pairs of gloves just to sit in the traffic. <laughs> um. So Rashford, Rashford, you know, completed his book of the of the of that system, and he, I think, the very much the skills he learned at that system, he very much uses the skills of utility rather than I'm trying to be clever. It's I'm trying to get past you. So there's that. In terms of finishing ability, his finishing ability is okay to good. That pause book volume, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Rashford is a okay to good finisher, whereas Martial is a good to sometimes great finisher. So um, as we're recording this, I'm currently writing a piece about anti Martial and what's gone wrong there. So we can get into that one later on if you want. So Rashford's finishes, he tends, he likes the tier and sort of cut inside on the left and try side foot. Um, sometimes um, he, the way he shoots that on restyle finish, his standing leg can be a little bit too close to where he sides foots it, which means sometimes when he's trying to bend it in the far corner, the ball can go straighter than you'd like. So this is why sometimes he has a lot of shots. He sometimes has shots that go direct to the keeper or can be pulled a little bit wide. Um, his plan B style finish tends to be the knuckleball. So, you know, the Ronaldo style finish. Um, and you can see this a lot during games where, when Marcus Rashford is very visibly trying to arrest the situation and take control of the game, he tends to do a knuckleball. Um, so there are two really interesting things that Manchester United, when Manchester United aren't doing well. The first thing is Rashford will go, oh, we need to like get going here, and he'll try and get the ball you know, cut inside and then do a knuckleball. The second one tends to happen when, uh, when Fred tra- tends to misplace a pass. So Harry Maguire will, you know, very often when United build up moves, it will go Victor Lendl off to Harry Maguire and Harry Maguire will either pass it on to Luke Shaw who then drive forward and talk to Marcus Rashford and they'll go down the left or Harry Maguire will try and build up through the middle which tends to mean he passes to Fred ahead of him. And then Fred will either pass to Bruno Fernandes or do something. If Fred misses or, or misplaces a pass that is quite simple, what you will see quite you know a minute or a minute or two afterwards is Harry Maguire, the next time Harry Maguire will get on the ball he will dribble past Fred and go, you had your turn. I'm going to do the pass now, which I find very mm. amusing. Um, and th- those are the two biggest tells to Manchester United when things aren't quite going well. Is that a, 
Is that a Fred? Uh, just to interject for a moment, is that a like a Fred specific thing? Like, do you think that is an issue with another player put in there, or is that maybe Fred not having the best touch and passing vision? Um, I think it's both. I think Manchester United right now, uh, vaguely. So by when Manchester United weren't very good, or in this sort of, uh, they're going to be like sixth or seventh place. I think you could vaguely sum up their problems as the back four was very, very nervous after the 6-1 defeat mm-hmm. to Spurs, and they're trying to figure it out. And to do that, they had to play a sort of safety-first approach. So you had this midfield pivot of Fred and Salt McTominay, who, while the best midfield pivot probably, or the most balanced one, it's more balanced than the Manny Matis and Paul Pogba, wasn't the most creative. So they're both two runners who can sort of tackle and can sort of do interceptions and can sort of pass, but they're not going to really do any line-breaking passes with any consistency. Now, you fix that by playing Bruno Fernandes, who has a chronic addiction to line-breaking passes, right? So you've got two guys in the pivot that can only really pass sideways or short passes forwards. And yeah, Bruno Fernandes is like, pass forwards all the time, yeah! <laughs> um, and this is this is why Bruno Fernandes works so well for Manchester United, to which why he might not have been so effective if he played for any other club, right? So he, he's allowed to be this sort of mad, catalyst, whirling dervish tyro, because... If Bruno doesn't make the line-breaking passes, no one else really can. Paul Popper can, but he, he doesn't really have the intensity of, of Bruno Fernandes or doesn't have the intensity in how he makes the passes. And I think that's more of a, a statement on the personalities between the two. And that's not to disparage Pogba or to dispar- or to you know praise Bruno Fernandes, but it's just like Paul, Bruno Fernandes plays football like a madman and, and Paul Pogba's just a bit more louche. Um, the way I describe it is Bruno Fernandes puts the fun into dysfunctional football team. <laughs> I'll take that. Uh, but to go back to Rashford, Rashford, sorry, Rashford's shooting is okay to good. He's a really, really good dribbler. He's a direct dribbler. He's also got, he's quite clever in an ad hoc style. Uh, and again, I'll, I'll use Sadio Mane as an example. Sadio Mane is a very, has a really interesting way of problem solving that looks a bit like someone trying to do a Rubik's Cube of just, He's just sort of figuring out, looking at players, like if I move here and I do this and I do this and I do this and I do this, that's how I do that. And Rashford has that sort of game reading ability. And you saw this in the game against Burnley, where even though he was stationed out on the right-hand side, which isn't his favorite role, he sort of did two or three crosses. I went, okay, Burnley are really good at defending crosses. But if I pause for a moment, that put, might put them all out of disarray. And that way I know exactly where to put the ball. And that's how he got to cross the ball, Pogba. And it was that sort of experimentation that Rashford's quite good at. Um, and those are his strengths. His weaknesses, I think it's been spoken about how he's not the best forward with his back towards goal. So he's five foot eleven. he's put on a bit of muscle. Um, he's 23 and he, you know, he's, he's approaching the sort of second maturation or the man's body, as it were. But he's not as good with his back towards goal as Anthony Martial, which is why Martial tends to lead the line and play number nine and, and Rashford play on the left between the two um, and I think that's a thing uh, his work in the air can sometimes be a little bit erratic and sometimes his finishing can be streaky as I mentioned with a side foot finish but other than that I think the really interesting thing about Rashford was he appeared at the same time as Kylian Mbappe and at the time both of them were finishing around like 30% of their shots which doesn't happen right um, historically speaking Lionel Messi finishes putting the scores on 20% of his shots and he's Lionel Messi. Uh, anywhere, but anywhere between finishing most top half strikers 
so top half of, of the top five leagues finish about 10% of their shots. And then anywhere between 12 and 15 is approaching someone who's playing European competition. So when Rashford and Mbappe put turn up, they were scoring 30% of their shots. I'm going, this is going to tail off in a little bit. And with Mbappe, the thing that was really scary was even though it did tail off, he was still, you know, the underlying numbers at the time were still, at, you know, Arsenal, Alexis Sanchez good. Whereas Rashford dipped to levels that some people, oh, he does need to go out on loan and did this. Whereas what happened last season especially was he made the jump and he made the jump to a level where you're like, oh, these numbers are good and they're sustainable and he's going to be this good for a long time and he's going to keep getting better, hopefully, you know, providing there's no injury or whatnot. And perhaps I'm biased because I've spoken to him a bit but I do get the impression there will be some point in his career, very similar to Wayne Rooney, there will be some point in his career where we go, he was he is world class. And whether it lasts a month or whether it lasts half a season or whether it lasts a season, he will have a point in time where I think you can comfortably say Marcus Rashford is top five players in the world in, in, in being a forward. Because he's got the beginnings of nearly everything and all the lines are vaguely going up. This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. All new Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. Today's episode is brought to you by our old friends, Mac Weldon. Wouldn't it be nice if we could have things both ways, like a zero-calorie cheeseburger, internet ads in March that weren't just reminders to do your taxes, a dog that never needs walking after midnight when it's cold, a Manchester United that is consistently good instead of their current scattershot approach? Well, we tend to think of clothing as an either-or situation as well. People think looking sharp means starchy Oxfords and stiff chinos rather than effortless comfort. But it's possible to have it both ways. Mack Weldon makes timeless apparel with modern performance fabrics for guys who want to look and feel sharp without sacrificing comfort. From their light-as-air underwear to innovative anti-odor tees and versatile yet comfortable pants, Mack Weldon has a full range of clothes that never go out of style. I got a few things recently, including a long-sleeve polo, which I love, uh, maybe the most comfortable t-shirt, which I also love, and my new favorite sweatpants, the Ace sweatpant. It's exactly what I described above, comfort and versatile, but still stylish. It's the type of sweatpant I can wear to pick up my kids from daycare and not think, I'm now wearing sweatpants in public. The other parents will judge me. Now I just think, judge away, nerds, because you will never be this comfortable unless you're also wearing a pair, in which case, high five. Mack Weldon is not flashy. It's just classic, always in style, and made from the world's most comfortable performance materials. They're designed to fit both your style and the demands of modern life. So get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code TSS. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com, promo code TSS to get 20% off your first order. Thank you to Mack Weldon for sponsoring today's episode. Do you think we have a similar conversation about Anthony Martial at any point? Maybe not top five, but top 10 or top 20, or does he still have other things to work on? We... I'm really sad because I, I was a card-carrying member of what was known as Martial FC. <laughs> so uh, it, it's a thing. Well, it's a really good thing. You can, can, you can look at Manchester. Well, I think I remember getting very, very happy when I saw the Manchester United Club account 
say, where's Martial FC? I was like, yes. Because this was a term created by Nigerian Manchester United fans who basically adored Martial. He, he's, again, similar to Marcus Rashford, you know, good type close control, really good dribbler. But where Rashford has the okay to good finishing, Martial has historically been good to great or capable of good to great. Um, and I'm sort of still looking at the spreadsheets as we go through here. Uh, and, you know, Martial is frequently put in the sorts of finishes that you're going, oh my word, how have you done that? And I think this is what made him a cult hero. And this is why he got the Martial FC fan base following. But even when team, things were bad at Manchester United, Martial was always there, capable to like whip out a bit of magic, able to do a, a lovely volley or a backheeled goal or to chip the goalkeeper. And that was really, really nice. I think what's happened now with Martial is that, especially this season, is his finishing has abandoned him. And his fundamentals in other traditional number nine styles of play just aren't there yet. And they aren't there for reasons you might say are to do with the chop and change of Manchester United manager. Or you may have to say to do with certain activities off the field. So I know he had a very interesting relationship. Um, some of those wounds are self-inflicted, I would say. I think there's a very, very uh, notorious Instagram message where he said he apologized for the evil he's been able to do. So I'm not going to pretend that Anthony Marshall has been a yep. nice boy. Um, <clears throat> but I think for... There, Anthony, so I'd say quite like a lot of players at Manchester United, um, Anthony Marshall is a player who had one certain strength. And even when things around him were going to pot, he could do something. He could rely on that strength. And that strength in Martial was his finishing. In the same way that Dave De Gea, even when things were going to pot, he could rely on his ability to use his feet to make saves. Or Aaron Wan-Bissaka, to a lesser degree. Even though things in Manchester United's defence don't really make sense, Wan-Bissaka can rely on his one-on-one finishing. But what's happening with a number of those players is, one, that strength is being found out by opposition teams. And those teams are now going, make sure he's not allowed to use his strength, work around that strength and see how he copes. And two, the Manchester, this Manchester United team can't quite figure out a way to get that strength to link up with someone else's strength and then to make, get the team to be the sum of its parts. So the Hayes problem was, you know, he could make great saves with his feet. So loads of teams went, shoot earlier. And the Manchester United defence, you know, a better defence would go, teams are going to shoot earlier, so protect the Hayes and block those shots. But they couldn't, so the Hayes looked below average for a season and a half and it's only now De Gea is beginning to get his form back the thing with Wan-Bissaka is he's really good at 1v1 tackles so other teams are going do not engage in 1v1 tackles you either double up on him or you deliver crosses from the left hand side and see how it deals with those now the United team either needs to you know put a winger in front of him to help protect some of that stuff with a double up or you get better at defending stuff on the left hand side so those crosses can't come in but until then Wan-Bissaka is left on his own I think uh, I think Anthony Martial's problem is Martial was always I'm a good finisher, even though this United team can't really build up moves unless Paul Pogba's on the pitch. At least for Martial, the person that plays in Martial a lot of the time is either Rashford or Paul Pogba. And I think when Pogba's not in the side, when Pogba's not in that deeper position, Martial's going, "Who's going to give me the ball?" Um, and, that's, and that's a real. And I think another thing about Martial is. And I'm really careful here. I don't want to call him lazy because I don't want to play into connotations of black football players and, and their body language, how they're lazy. But he does look sullen. And I, I, he, does, he can be dissuaded 
Um, so you will see two or three times in the United game where Martial will get on the ball. Well, like the, the break is on and Martial will run and he will point where he wants the ball. And then it'll be a player. Perhaps it'll be Fred. Perhaps it'll be Scott McTominay. Perhaps it'll be Victor Lindelof. And you can see the player look up and go, I can't do that pass. And then pass it simple. And then Martial's like, oh, God, fine. I won't, I won't make that run anymore. Which on a team level sort of makes sense, right? If you're a striker, you know that pass isn't going to come when certain players make, get on the ball. You can understand why you don't want to make that run. However, on a personal level, as a striker, you would say you keep making that run anyway. And you keep being really, really annoying. You keep forcing the issue from those players to make those sorts of passes because that's how the team wins. And I think that's Martial's problem. Um, there was a point in time where I was a card-carrying member of Martial FC and I thought very much Anthony Martial would go to a World Cup and help France win a World Cup or a Euros. I am now becoming of the belief that Edison Cavani should start every single game for Manchester United until Cavani's legs fall off. Yeah, I, was, I wasn't really which... prepared to go there with you, but I am now prepared to go there with you. Yeah. <laughs> I think I think Anthony Martial would improve the squad of every team in the top six. He would not improve the starting 11 of every team. And that's quite sad because he definitely had the potential to, or has the potential to. I think, like a lot of players, it could be fixed if you have someone like Darren Fletcher come in and go, right, I need to stand here and here when the team's out of possession. So that, that is that is like my next question, because I feel like like everything you said has been really interesting and gives a lot of good information and good insight into the players. But it also has me wanting to talk about Solskjaer for a minute, because a lot of these things of Rashford having to figure out, oh, like these crosses aren't working. Burnley are really good at defending them. Let me try something else. Martial having to adjust his runs or Lindelof maybe being put in positions where he's has to try to play balls that he's not comfortable with. All of that feels like a coach not setting up the team to play to their strengths and allowing teams to like get into two V one situations with Aaron Juan Basaka. That feels like a thing that you could then adjust or kind of tinker your tactics a little bit to not let that be such an, an issue. And it doesn't necessarily sound like Solskjaer is doing that. So what is his role in the current Manchester United in your mind in terms of is he making them better or is this still a some of their parts doing good things but not necessarily doing the best of things? I think I'll push back on what you said there about playing to yeah. their strengths. I think Ole Gunnar Solskjaer's asset and detriment is he perhaps only plays to their strengths. So what you see now is just no weaknesses are being covered up. It's it's a, a sort of death or glory style from a lot of Manchester United. So you are seeing, I think with Wan-Bissaka, it's very much Wan-Bissaka, you're good at 1v1s. So do that and I'll figure out the other stuff. <laughs> and I think it's that sort of thing of if you've ever been a teacher or you've ever been a coach and you don't have enough time to teach all the kids about their weaknesses, you're very much like, I need you to just focus on these four things you're good at right now and I'll get back to you later. Um, and I think in a season that has been there's so little you know so much little comparative time on the training ground compared to other seasons uh, and in uh, a season which you know again probably works to Solskjaer's plus and his detriment so in the same way that not everyone has time on the training ground Solskjaer probably can't improve his team the way he wants because he has less time on the training ground but that also means some of the hyper-evolved managers or the perceived brainiacs we have in the Premier League also can't use that so that's probably why you know Liverpool aren't clicking up front. That's probably why it's taken Man City so long to get their stuff together. And to Solskjaer's credit, in focusing on his plan A and in focusing on 
I think I'll sort of draw a parallel to Mikel Arteta. So Solskjaer came in, he's looked at his squad and he goes, right, I've got a lot of quick forwards here. Let me play smash mouth counter-attacking football. Because one, that plays into all their strengths and he knows he's got the players that can do counter-attacking football. Two, counter-attacking football is not that difficult to teach. You know, eventually you get to a point where there's you know, two or three counter-attacks where even if you don't know where to pass at the right time, the obvious option will be there because there's only two or three players ahead of you as you're running at full pace. So you don't need to think about it too much. And three, um, you can't account for pace, right? You can scout for it. You can say Manchester United are very good at the counter-attack and you can say, try not to let this and this happen. But once in a while, it will get through. And I think that's why this Manchester United team works to an extent. And I think that's why Bruno Fernandes is so good to an extent because Bruno Fernandes, you know, Bruno Fernandes is crippling addiction to line-breaking passes, even though, you probably shouldn't make line-breaking passes, works in this Manchester United team because they've gone from being, oh, they'll try four or five counter-attacks and then they'll stop to being, no, they're going to counter-attack you forever and they will not stop. And you can either defend them all or one of those is going to get through and they're going to get a goal. And then and then what? And I like that. Or I think that's why they've been so good in, in games where even they haven't been you know, the most impressive away from home. And this is probably why they're very good away from home because there's just more space you know, even though we're behind closed doors, there's just a little bit more space to run onto the ball when you're away from home. Um, I think what's really interesting is Solskjaer has come into this Manchester United team and gone, I'm just going to make, I'm not really concerned about how, you know, how the, I very rarely talks about how the team defends. If I go, what's your plan for Manchester United? Uh, he doesn't really describe, oh, and then we're going to defend in this manner and we're going to do this. He's very much like, no, we're going to score quick goals, crossing goals and passing goals. I'm like, okay, that's, that's the manager you want to do. Um, whereas Mikel Arteta is very much, you know, he's trying to build from the back and he's trying to get the good fundamentals going, which is why this Arsenal team has been spoken of very, very highly by some of the total neck wearing, spectacle wearing stats nerds like myself. <laughs> but also that's why this Arsenal team has lost yeah. a number of games, because I think in this COVID affected season, it's less about fancy footwork and it's more about how hard can you punch. And this United team can punch pretty hard, as hard as some of the best teams in England, if not the best teams in Europe. Um, and I think that's Solskjaer's credit. And I think this Manchester United team are very unconventional, right? And they are sort of, you know, to, I, I'm not sure if I'm allowed to use cross-sport comparisons, but they do every now and again. I, I am writing these things going, you can make this team more conventional, but that would probably make them less effective because then it'll be easier to figure out. Um, and I think... There, there are advantages in just being so Deontay Wilder style. I've got a knockout yeah. punch and just try and stop me. So I think that's, that's really interesting because in my mind it has been they're a, a dysfunctional team that still find ways to function, but I have operated under the assumption that Ole Gunnar Solskjaer is trying to fix that dysfunction, that he himself is kind of fighting against that and trying to establish stability would you say then that like that's not necessarily the case and it's more like he is okay with some of that dysfunction? He's okay with not having certain answers and with things being a little bit disjointed because it then allows them to do different things? Because he does like to make little adjustments here and there to throw off the opposition. Do you think he is sort of embracing that dysfunction? Is he more okay with it than I might expect? I, th- I, th- I think he. I think it's a really re- reactive – or I say really. I think he is a – competent to good reactive coach for the big games right he 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 has sometimes got lineups wrong and i've gone oh don't yep. do that uh, one example is you know the game manchester United get knocked out against rb leipzig leipzig drew three all with bayern munich 
on the Saturday and they delivered a lot of crosses from the left-hand side onto the right. And he went, oh God, they're practicing for Manchester United. And the first two minutes they did that. And Solskjaer was just all like, oh, how'd they do that? <laughs> um, so he, he can be, he, he can get things wrong, which is, you know, everyone gets it wrong. I get loads of things wrong. Um, we'll talk uh, about uh, that but later. But I think we can get into one big thing I got wrong recently. Um, uh, but I think there are times where Solskjaer does really interesting stuff. You're like, oh, that's cool. Um, so the Burnley game, for example, um, Manchester United took some short corner kicks. So it was sort of Luke Shaw to Bruno, and then Luke Shaw whipped in an in-swinging corner to the back post for Harry Maguire to crash it down, which was, they had not done that before. Uh, and I think that's a very interesting way to use Harry Maguire's slab head uh, in a more effective manner when attacking corners. I was like, oh, that's really nice. That's quite cute. Um, which, you know, he's not he's not a complete novice. He he knows how to create attacking moves, and I think he while he do, he does he does enjoy that sort of tweaking and tightening of stuff. Um, there is an improvisation improvisational style in this Manchester United team, but they're at the beginnings of something that's interesting. I thought another thing that was interesting was in the Liverpool game, Manchester United did the Manchester City goal or attempted to. So you know, Pep Guardiola's Man City have this goal where the wide player the wide forward will sort of run towards the six yard box and then either wait for the overlap or, or wait for the pass over. And then they cut it back to the, the penalty area to which the striker has happened. And then you saw Rashford was running down the left-hand side. Luke Shaw overlapped him. Rashford passed through to Luke Shaw. Luke Shaw pulled the ball all the way back to Bruno Fernandes and Bruno Fernandes had the shot that was eventually saved by, by Allison. And that was, you know, it was that attempt and the Paul Pogba attempt. Those are the two best chances. But when you saw that, I went, oh, that's what Pep does. That's Man City's thing. United are doing that? Okay. So I think Oli's smart in having this sort of counter-attacking bedrock, and he's building upon that. And I think what you're seeing now is further refined. So you've seen Solskjaer definitely likes the protection that is offered by Fred and Scott McTominay in midfield. Um, but he's not wedded to it. He will, you will go, oh, I'm going to play Paul Pogba and Emmanuel Matic in games where he wants Matic's further protection to the back four because Matic is left-footed and can drop in and create a back three. Um, he likes Paul Pogba in a deeper position, even though Paul Pogba doesn't really like you it. You said that with a question um, mark in your voice, I think. He likes Paul Pogba? I think, I think he likes... Well, I think the way Solskjaer has managed Paul Pogba and has uh, talked about him to the press and has, and has used him in games after Raiola said the things he said before the Red Bull game has been really, really impressive. And again, another contrast, if you compare the way Solskjaer treats his players and talks about his players to the press to say Frank Lampard. Yeah. You can see the merits hmm. to the way he approaches things. So uh, as far as I know, if if you only go by what Oligon Solskjaer says to newspapers, Oligon Solskjaer loves every single Manchester United play. Like he has nothing bad to say about any of them. Even uh I call him Uncle Jude, Odion Ngalo. Even Odion Ngalo who he brought in and <laughs> didn't Uncle play. I, I even though you know, he hasn't played him he's barely played him at all this season um, when asked about whether or not he'd play him in the Watford game against the FA Cup because he brought up the fact that Igalo scored the most goals in the training session around Robin earlier and he said yeah I'll definitely bring him on he, did, he didn't he did bring him on but the fact that he brought it up and was very complimentary uh, is a contrast to, to someone like say Frank Lampard who as far as I know Frank Lampard has been quite critical about a number of his players apart from Mason Mount um, to, you know, to the point that it's a meme. Even. So, man, you're, you're really making me kind of like reevaluate Solskjaer a little bit because I think like 
he's breaking my brain. He genuinely is. That, you know, but I, I think, I, but I think that I, he's breaking your brain makes me feel more comfortable that he is because it's like okay, someone else's brain is being broken, and it seems like that's the general consensus. I think what. I struggle with is the idea that so many coaches right now, to your point about Arteta, they have these very specific styles or specific influences or philosophies they want to bring to bear. And they've got to get everybody on board and they've got to get people kind of buying into the system. And sometimes that works and sometimes it doesn't. So Arteta, we're not sure, work in progress, but like Guardiola, Hansi Flick is one of those to me, even Zidane sort of has a philosophy that you can understand that Jurgen Klopp obviously does with Gagan pressing. And with Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, I keep looking at that and thinking, like, what is he trying to do aside from sitting and countering? That feels like an okay idea, but that's what Mourinho wanted to do. And when he talks about this, like, free-flowing attacking soccer with lots of passing, and then you see them sitting deep and having, you know, 40, 35% possession, that's where I start to scratch my head. But maybe the idea of looking for the philosophy to then understand the coach is maybe the wrong way to do it. And instead, looking at it as, like, dysfunction isn't necessarily the worst idea and having a lot of different options isn't the worst idea either that I guess in and of itself can be a plan is plan to have a bunch of different yeah. approaches and see what works. I've, I've, I've been on other podcasts about how I don't like the word philosophy in football. Cause I think it groups together too many things. That's probably so, fair. yeah. Um, so I, I said this on a TIFO podcast to which there was a very, very nice gentleman in the comments. who said, I've, I've joked philosophies for poets, university students, not for football. Um, to which someone in the comments went, a, a, a better way of thinking about it, to which I, I've, I've stolen wholesale, is if you think of it as tactics, strategy, and logistics. So your tactics are what you do on the field. Um, the way it was always explained to me is tactics is everything that happens below your shoulders, and then strategy is everything that happens between your ears. Hmm. So United's tactics don't really make sense. Right, they and this is like this is why it takes so long to explain Manchester United and why they're doing certain things because very often Manchester United need two men to do the job of one man, but also Ollie seems to be very very good at picking the correct two men to do that job. Apart from in defence, where I'm going, Harry Maguire and Victor Lindelof don't really work. Um, why do Why do you say that? Just because Lindelof is not the best on the ball, or other specific reasons. So Harry Maguire is a very, very good um, – it's bad. Every time I think of Harry Maguire, I think of a very bad quote from Lou Van Gaal. Um, he's what my friend calls a horny defender. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yes. Uh, so Harry Maguire is what, you call a, is what my friend calls a horny defender in that Harry Maguire always marks the man rather than marks the space. So he, Harry Maguire is good in his 1v1s and he's good walking towards danger. Um, and he's very good at putting out fires. Um, he's very, he's a very good ball carrying defender. I wouldn't say he's a ball, like, I wouldn't say he's a ball passing, a passing defender. He's good when he's passing the ball. He's even better when he's got the ball and he's dribbling forwards, especially when he's, you know, Michael Cox said, even though everyone thinks he's a right sided center back, he's actually better on the left because then he can use his shoulder to protect the ball, which now I've seen it, I can't unsee it. So there's that. Victor Lindhoff is very, very, is, is very good at marking the space. And I can see why. Solskjaer wants Lindelof to play with Maguire because it's that sort of cat and dog partnership. One's hot and one's cold. Um, but the problem is Lindelof, it can be bullied off the ball, both in the air and on the ground. And Victor Lindelof isn't that quick and neither is Harry Maguire. So even though those two centre-backs kind of work uh, and they can put out fires, they're both quite bad at smelling the smoke. Uh, so you can see quite a three, you know, two or three Manchester United disasters yeah. that happen well, like both of them going, what happened? <laughs> What's that smoke there for? Um, what does that mean? Yeah. Yeah. 
And that problem causes knock-on problems for Aaron Wan-Bissaka because Aaron Wan-Bissaka, and I don't know if he if he does this because he's been coached to or if he does this out of habit, Wan-Bissaka can often stand too close to Victor Lindelof when crosses are being delivered. I'm not sure if he's doing that because he's been told stand next to Lindelof because if the ball goes over, you can clear the spillage. Or if he just does that because he a problem is Wan-Bissaka doesn't really clear the spillage and the ball tends to like go over him too and the guy at the back post scores. So this is how, this is how a goal went in at RB Leipzig this is how Sevilla scored in the Europa League semi-final and that's like United are good at picking the right two players apart from defence where no one can really play like the defence can't be more than some of its parts because the sums don't add up but in central midfield Fred and Scott McTominay work together quite well ahead of that Bruno Fernandes works quite well with Fred and Scott McTominay right wing doesn't really make sense now so I can I'm, like again. You can vaguely understand why he plays Juan Mata on the right wing because that means when Scott Fred and Scott McTominay aren't making passes, Juan Mata can do the passes for them on top of Bruno Fernandez. But also Juan Mata's kind of slow, so then you got this other problem. So you go, okay, then I will move Marcus Rashford to the right hand side. But then who's going to play on the left? And you go, okay, well, I guess you can play Paul Pogba there, and I'll offer some variation. But also, maybe we should try Martial there. But Martial's in bad form. Okay, and this is the thing about Manchester United where. Sometimes they work to the sum of their parts, but also those parts are very, very baffling. And sometimes they can be quite contrasting. And I am, the more I think about it, the more I get to it. The, the, the thing about, like, I think that's exactly what it is, is I just don't think of, like, many coaches in the modern era being like, uh, that guy, let's see what happens. Like, I feel like you get a little bit of experimentation, like Klopp having, like, kind of being yeah. forced into using central midfielders as center backs, but that's also a thing he's always been okay yeah. with doing. So even there, to me, it's not yeah. this, like, uh, Jordan Henderson, we've never tried this before, but we'll see what happens. Whereas it definitely feels a bit more like, Paul Pogba's really good, let's put him on the right wing and see what happens. And that's where I get a little bit but concerned. He, but- but even then, I wouldn't say it's haphazard. Well, I'd say there's a haphazard precision in it. Where, where <laughs> Haphazard precision is my Solskjaer, new favorite phrase. Where Ole Gunnar Solskjaer very much is, there is a definite plus if I try this. And the weaknesses I'll mm-hmm. figure out later. Um, one of my favorite quotes is from Dusty Rhodes, um, you know, famous professional wrestler, father to Cody. Um, and he basically said, spend the money now and make more later. And I think... I think that's all they're going to. I think on a tactical level, that's how United play. Score goals now, and we'll figure out the rest later. Um, on a strategic level, United are beginning to make more sense. So Oli Gunnar told you know he wants to play attacking football. He wants to be able to dominate, get teams. He wants to be able to put in crosses. He wants to be able to attack in more than three or four ways. He basically the way it sounds like he wants to create. To me, the description he gave basically he either wants to like redo what Klopp has done at Liverpool, or he wants to create Manchester United 0708 so the one with Bruni, Ronaldo and Tevez um, which sort of that vaguely makes some of his transfer signings make sense I'm like oh that's why you want Jaden Sancho you want Sancho to be your Ronaldo and sort of etc etc so that strategy makes sense even though you know even though he still hasn't explained to me what he wants to do in defence um, and then of course there's the logistics which is his own sort of mess of we don't know how much money Manchester United have we don't really know if Manchester United are good or bad in the transfer market because they can sometimes bring in players or, and they sometimes can't. Um, some of the players they've brought in are genuinely really intriguing. So I'm, I'm really interested to see how Armand Diallo turns out. I think he'll probably be playing sooner rather than later. And when I say sooner rather than later, I mean he'll, he'll probably have 10 appearances before the, start, before the end of the season, not he's going to start next month. 
Um, so I think that's really interesting. And then also there's the thing of like, why did you mess around with Jaden Sancho yeah. for so long? Um, but I think this is the thing. I'd say for a long time, the problem with Manchester United was they went, we're Manchester United. And they didn't pay attention to what that meant. And they were too caught up in saying we're Manchester United without putting in the necessary care and consideration to what that meant and maintaining that. And I think what Solskjaer has done and what his strength has always been is when he came in, he went, yeah, we are Manchester United. Why haven't you been doing Manchester United things for a while? And he's got them back doing Manchester United style things. So sort of wearing suits when you're at home games or paying certain attention to the club academy. So the academy now has more money in it than it has in any point in time in the last couple of years. And now United's academy is getting to a good point. They're still a little bit behind Manchester City and Chelsea, but they're good and getting better. Um, and I think that's I think that's Solskjaer's big thing of just going, this is how we used to be. Manchester United, we are Manchester United, means something, and this is what it means, and do all those things. And I think the challenge now is figuring out what Manchester means in the future and whether or not he's going to be the man to do it. And I still don't know. Although, looking at the way this season does, I don't think he's going to be gone anytime soon. Yeah, I think I think I agree with you, and I think I agree with you that he seems to be operating from the place of, like, we're Manchester United, we do what we want, and I'm Manchester United's manager, I do what I want. That definitely feels like the influence of Sir Alex Ferguson, who we also know didn't really, like... Uh, he he really he had the mentality of no players bigger than the club, obviously, which is why you have David Beckham moved on, Ronaldo moved on, Roy Keane moved on. If Solskjaer, you can see where I'm going with this. If Solskjaer yep. is continuing that legacy of like we're Manchester United, we do what we want, doesn't that sort of mean that Paul Pogba has to move on, or do you think there's a way that Solskjaer can kind of make this work? He can keep Paul Pogba happy, keep him within the team, and not necessarily have to part ways. I think I think it's best for. For intents and purposes, I think it's better for both parties if Paul Popper leaves in the summer. Hmm. Um, I think, for better or worse, Paul Pogba is always... Yeah, Paul Pogba is the sort of person who's going to do what's best for Paul Pogba, right? Um, and he... Everything about him and the way he set up his life is very much to, to that effect. And if you, you know, follow him on social media and whatnot, he very much... I think there's a very good article from Mike Thompson on Paul Pogba when he visits his house... And Wright Thompson observes Paul Pogba decorates his house with the sort of luxury of a man that grew up with not much and now very much, much wants to make sure he will not return to that level. Um, and I think he carries himself with that sort of ambition. And I think Manchester United stopped being what's best for Paul Pogba in February 2019 when And Herrera got injured in United's 0-0 draw against Liverpool. So... You know, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer comes in in late December. They have that really, really good run of form. Pogba's the best player in the league along with Kevin De Bruyne. He's on that great scoring run. He's playing on the left of a 4-3-3. Nemanja Matic is doing the tackling and Herrera is doing all the running. And then if you watch in that game, sort of there were four injuries in one game. Alexis Sanchez got injured, Jesse Lingard got injured, and Ander Herrera got injured as well. Um, Eric Bailly was ruled out, I think, just before it. It was like a proper game of... United went off for warm weather training in the January and they came back and everyone just got broken because Oli worked them too hard. And I think pretty much after that draw, it was international break and Paul Popper went, yeah, Real Madrid will be a dream. Yeah. And that was it. I think ever since then, Paul Popper has basically been serving out his notice. Uh, I thought he'd leave in the summer of 1819. He stayed on for an additional season, which was last season. He was injured for the majority of that. He played through injury for the majority of that. But he very much looked like a person who's like, I would quite like to leave. Could you help me leave? 
Um, but then because of COVID, Real Madrid didn't come calling. Uh, and now you've got this situation, which is, again, sort of another sort of he's serving his notice period and now he's fully fit. Uh, and I think we are in a situation where everyone would sort of be okay if he left. I think it just didn't work out. I think he was, I think the 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 package that was put together to bring Paul Pogba to Manchester United wasn't ever quite executed. I think the level of defensive midfield partner Pogba was given at Manchester United was some way away of the quality he was given at Juventus and for France. And I think on some level he has reason to be like, this is a nonsense, I'd like to leave. Um, how he's vocalised that thought has annoyed a lot of football fans. And I think how he's played in some of the games you'd expect Paul Pogba to dominate has also been a disappointment to some English football fans because I don't think Manchester United ever truly understood what they had with Paul Pogba. And I think the English media didn't quite understand the type of person Paul Pogba is. Um, but he's in a good run of form right now. Ole Gunnar Solskjaer seems to be on favourable terms with him and talking to him quite well. Um, and if he can sustain this form, which looks more likely than not, I think, again, this non-COVID sort of more freestyle chaos environment of the Premier League probably suits Paul Pogba because he's getting less he's getting less people pressing him and actively try and gap in his face and annoy him. And there are just more gaps on the pitch for him to just spray the ball around. So this could probably be one of the better seasons we'll see of Paul Pogba at Manchester United. But also I think at the end of the season, everyone should shake hands. And if um, this is me taking off my journalist hat and putting on my sort of son of an accountant Manchester United fan hat on, uh, if someone came with 50 to 60 million for Paul Pogba, I think that'd be a good deal. All right. So then my final question would be, if we have Paul Pogba on the move, uh, Paul Pogba being a player that maybe we didn't quite understand what they had, uh, would that be the same for you when it comes to Weston McKinney? <laughs> um, right. First things first, <laughs> I, would like to apo- I would like to apologize to Weston McKinney and, and, and people around Weston McKinney. So uh, during the summer transfer window, I said uh, Weston McKinney was linked to Southampton and I was covering Southampton at the time. Uh, and I tried to firm up whether or not those links were there. Uh, and it, it looked there or thereabouts, but also it wasn't to a point where I could say there was a fire. It was just white smoke rather than dark smoke and whatnot. The type of thing uh, that Lindelof and I tweeted, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, and, and I tweeted uh, these Western McKenney links to, I said the first thing about these links to Western McKenney and Southampton is they don't seem to be based on anything. And he said the second thing about these links is that Western McKenney isn't a particularly good football player, um, to which uh, I believe I was on the front page of Reddit Soccer uh, and uh, a number of football fans were quite vocal in, in my commentary on Weston McKenney. Uh, and now, of course, Weston McKenney is playing for Juventus and, and seems to be doing quite well, to which uh, I, would you like, I know that Weston McKenney is doing quite well because every time he does something... <laughs> I was wondering about does anything, Anytime he does anything, someone will tweet me in the comments or will quote tweet me and go, oh yeah, but it wasn't too, it wasn't good enough for Southampton, was it, Carl? Um, there was a really strange moment during the League Cup final, the League Cup semi-final between Manchester. So I, I, I missed the insurrection at the capital because um, I was covering the Manchester United game against Man City. So I was sort of, you know, a military coup is going on and I can't pay attention to it because John Stones is scoring goals at Old Trafford. Um, 
Uh, to which partway through my, my report, someone tweeted me going, yeah, you see how Weston McKennie scored? I was like, dude, <laughs> dude, one, I'm at work, two, people are invading the Capitol building and you're trying, and you're occupied. Look, Carl, you're, we're going to deal with the rise of fascism in America in a minute, but first we need you to just admit that Weston McKinney is maybe a better footballer than you said he was. That's, we have our priorities yeah. straight here, Carl, and I think you need to get on board. So we had we uh, there was another moment I think uh, just before Christmas when Manchester United were playing Sheffield United where someone basically just went through every single moment Weston McKennie did and just tagged me in it and go Carl can you do this it was to a point where I I would reasonably say it, I you know I I think I have grounds to say this was borderline <laughs> harassment and it was it was less about Weston McKennie and more about let make let's make Carl anchor shut up so I like to say sorry for first of all about what I said about Weston McKenney. And as I have tweeted, I'd like to explain, um, when Weston McKenney was linked to Southampton, I did my homework. I talked to a number of people in football. I talked to people at football clubs who were also linked to Weston McKenney. I looked at the stats, I looked at the numbers. I had someone at a different Premier League football club um, who was linked to Weston McKenney. Uh, and I said, what do you think of this football player? Uh, and they you know, made noises. Uh, and I came to the assessment that at the time, Weston McKenney didn't look particularly good at football, to which you had me on this podcast, uh, and, and we spoke yeah. about this. I mean, you, you you spoke about his versatility, and I made a noise like, eh. Um, and you also mentioned this could be a case a bit like Josie Altador, where he didn't look good at one team and they looked better somewhere else, to which I sort of made a noise of Josie Altador wasn't that good in the Premier League. Now, if, if you allow me to uh, thank you for indulging me Please. with this question. Um, so Weston McKenney was a central midfielder in a Schalke team, which we now know is an absolute cluster, yep. like just a dump truck mess, right? This Schalke team went 30 games without victory. They nearly went, they went, you know, a calendar year. They, they are awful, 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 awful stuff. And Weston McKenney was a central midfielder in that system. Uh, um, in that system, Weston McKenney was asked to do some form of creative work and he didn't look capable of doing it. Now, this was before we truly knew the depths of which Schalke would plumb yep. to. Um, and my assessment of Weston McKenney, along with the assessment of some other people in football, and again at other football clubs and some football scouts, was Weston McKenney is a good athlete. Uh, and I say this also having worked close to Weston McKenney uh, for in a past life. So uh, I helped work on an article with him for the yeah. Players Tribune. So um, there's that too. Uh, and they were like, Wes McKenney's a good athlete. And from you know, from talking to Shaka fans, someone said, Wes McKenney's a good football player, but he looks like he doesn't particularly have a high ceiling and he looks like he's approaching that ceiling. And if you're a football team that wants to direct any of your creative work through him, you're not going to do well. Southampton play a 4 system where the central midfield players have to do a lot of running and a lot of pressing, to which I can see why you want Wes McKenney. They also have to do a lot of passing to which I was very much like, oh, I would not buy him. Hence the tweet. Uh, and I think you mentioned about his versatility before. Uh, and I am of the opinion that if a player is described as versatile, versatile, unless you're talking about, say, someone who can play a forward and then a wide forward, then you're getting stretchy territory. And I believe someone mentioned, oh, he can play right back as well. To a degree, every player can play right back if you're right footed. It, right back is one of those positions where you can sort of hide a player 
for a midfield there, if possible. So I wasn't high on what people were saying was his versatility. I did see his ball-winning skills, and I did see his sort of high VO2 max. And I went, okay, I can see why he was linked to Southampton. But also I thought, if Southampton needs to get a replacement for Hoiberg, they probably shouldn't get him. When he was linked to Juventus, I was very confused. Uh, I think when the deal went through, I tweeted, I have comments, I will not present them at this time. Um, to which I shouldn't have done that. <laughs> yeah, that was very in, in, in hindsight, that was a very stupid thing for me to do. Um, but one thing that I did find really interesting from when Messi McKenney was announced for Juventus was he said, and he said, what are you going to bring to Juventus? He said, ball winning. I think, I think that's my skill. Um, which was, I think that was the first time I saw it from him, that this is my skill. Um, and I think in his setup right now in this Juventus team, sometimes he's a starter, sometimes he comes off the bench. So he came off the bench in Juventus is 2-0 lost to Inter Milan on the weekend. Um, that's what he does. He focuses on mm-hmm. parrying, pressing, running, and winning the ball back. And he doesn't have the creative burden that he has. He had at Schalke, or he would have had if he'd gone to Southampton, or he would have had if he'd gone to another Premier League team, because he's very much, I'm going to win the ball, I'm going to give the ball to one of Juventus's very, very talented attacking players. Uh, and sometimes I get to pass through an outlet. And, he, you know, he's very good at that. Yeah. And the fact that he's focusing on that, and the fact that Perlo's gone, I don't need to worry about that stuff. Focus on that means that Weston McKenney's talent ceiling is much higher. Um, and which is why Weston McKenney's doing really well. Because he's like, oh, I, I just need to focus on ball winning. And anything else is a bonus. So when he is getting those goals and he is picking up those you know, extra bits, because it's not the utter necessity of doing those things, he's getting there. So I will say, well done, Weston <laughs> McKenney. I'm very sorry for saying you're bad at football because it turns out you're very good at ball winning and you're also getting better at all those other things. Uh, and I hope Juventus make your loan deal permanent and I hope you enjoy playing Juventus. And I hope when fans come back to Serie A and, and watch Bayern Glow's doors, you're given the proper respect and you, you can go on and have a proper career. So those that have tweeted me uh, and basically said a lot of very mean things, I will say some of those things were really mean and they really got to me. Um, so please don't do that anymore. And I'm really sorry I insulted a football player you like. And I'll try not to do that again. Uh, I appreciate all of that. I really do, including the kind of personal information in there. I would also say, like, I don't... I understand why people, like, especially when it's a person you really like or a player you really like, why you want to defend that person. But I would also remind uh, listeners how often they probably have had feelings about a player who wasn't good or a player who was going to be great. I always talk about my, I was convinced that Fred, the original Brazilian Fred, who was going to score a million goals, I think the 2014 World Cup, like I was sure he was going to be the top scorer. <laughs> like how often we get stuff wrong and the difference being that with, with writers such as yourself, that's written down for forever. So you can go find that hot take about Weston McKinney was bad or Paul Pogba is the savior that Manchester United need. And then maybe that doesn't end up being the case. So I understand why people ideally good naturedly are like teasing you a little bit. But I also think like that criticism wasn't unique to you. I think there were lots of questions about, about Weston McKinney, including from the American soccer community that I think he has gone a long way towards answering with Juve. But I think I'll speak for myself and say, like, I was pretty skeptical of that move and not sure if he was going to get minutes or if he was, if he was going to get consistent minutes more than five here or 10 there or maybe a cup game that they don't care about. So I've been surprised by how good he's looked and how consistent he has been for them for a team that hasn't been that consistent. So I don't think you were alone in your skepticism. So I would just remind people to be nice. Just be nice because everybody's got opinions and sometimes they're right and sometimes they're wrong. They're just not always written down for forever. (laughs) Thank you. I, I will try not to say 
anyone is outwardly bad at football, at least in that way. Again, I'll try and couch it. I'm, yeah, going I'm trying to think Although, of the obvious joke here, like uh, unless John O'Shea <laughs> gets discussed. Ah, John O'Shea was a good, a good uh, ever John position player. Good play. I, I did have one recently where I went, I can't believe Leeds have been done because Scott McTominay decided he wanted to be a football player. <laughs> yeah. um, to which Scott McTominay can decide mm-hmm. every now and again. It's great. It, we're in that really fun bit where I'm not sure if Scott McTominay is a six yeah. or an eight. And he might be an eight, which means I have to drastically write, rewrite a number of things. And also, he needs to improve in like a number of things as well. <laughs> oh, it's fun times. It's always fun times when Carl is on the show. Uh, Carl has been very generous for this time. I don't want to take up any more, especially because I'm starting to think that you're just using this as a stalling tactic to not have to write the Rashford book. So I'm not going to let you do that anymore. I'm going to make you go back to writing your book. But for now, Carl, thank you for talking all things Man United and Transfer Window and Fufu and Weston McKinney. We've covered a lot of topics today, even if they haven't been that yeah. much of a variety of topics. <laughs> I've enjoyed it greatly. I hope you're doing really well, my friend. And uh, I can't wait to come back soon.